Another great show, and today we are talking about a very old band, a band that was hot when it had one of the best um, front men in the business. We're talking about Van Halen, and we're talking about the early years with uh, David Lee. Yeah, the David Lee Roth years of Van Halen, 1974 to 85. Uh, maybe some people are going to ask us why we didn't do the Sammy Hagar years or anything. I'm just going to Sammy Hagar absolutely sucks. Uh, exactly. Okay. And the band, the band was, to me, the band was not even the same band anymore. No. Uh, the music was different. Uh, Hagar was not a good fit. Some people love that era. I don't think it was great. Then they had the guy from Extreme after that. That was even worse. That was even okay. worse. Yeah. And, you know, it just was, they lost me. Once, once Roth left the band, they lost me. And a lot of people feel that way too. Um, but those, I guess it was uh, one, two, three, four, five, six albums that they did. Yeah. I think are some of the greatest, you know, hard rock records ever released. Uh, Eddie was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, his guitar playing blew everybody away. Uh you know when they first when that first album came out, no one heard guitar like that before. Um, you know they would they would kind of start a little bit before MTV, but then they would you know get into being MTV darlings with the 1984 album. They had videos before that too that did get some airplay. Uh, I remember the, the video for Pretty Woman, and you know uh, um, I think. Uh, I think there was a video for Unchained. I remember like live stuff that would pop up on MTV once in a while. Let me tell you, the video I remember was Hot for the Teacher. Hot Jesus for the Teacher, yeah. I yep. remember being watching MTV and that video would come in. and Yeah, we all love that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were all teenagers at the time. The video was had the hot girl, hot teacher dancing around, you know. Um, David Lee Roth was a, was a great front man. He really he was. was great. You know, he was He was funny. And he and he was just off the hook, Gonzo sometimes, and the yeah. way running around on stage and everything. Um, you ever get to see them with David Lee Roth or or with or with anybody? And Van Halen is like one of the few groups that I've ever seen live. Yeah, I I, I saw them on the 1984 tour, okay, at the Nassau Coliseum, 
there was a lot of lot of good shows that year um, that I, I remember 1984 being a very good year. Um, definitely was was crazy. Uh, you know, the audience was was a lot of fun too. I remember you know everybody partying and everything before. Uh, I just you know they were a good band. You know, and they, they kind of crossed band, over. Yeah. They crossed over between different genres. They were kind of like you, you know, you could be into like even some punk and stuff like that, and still kind of like Van Halen. You know, yeah. I remember, I remember like Joey Ramone wearing a Van Halen shirt. You know, in uh, in 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 Rock Scene magazine. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, so, but uh, it's a good story here, and it it actually starts. In Europe, okay, because the Van Halen brothers, Eddie and Alex, were born in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. So Alex was born in 1953, and Eddie was born in 1955. They were sons to Dutch musician Jan Van Halen and an Indonesian-born Eugenia Van Beers. Now, it's interesting. Uh she was Indonesian, and she was part of what was called like the Indo people. Indo people, yeah, which are like they're indigenous to Indonesia. There was a, a Dutch part of Indonesia; they were a colony, and they were kind of mixed of Dutch and and you know um, indigenous to to Indonesia. I guess you could say Indonesian, Asian, like that. So you know, Eddie and, and Alex were were half half Asian. Okay. So the family moved to Pasadena, California in 1962, and the young Eddie began learning classical piano just by ear. Just by That's ear. pretty good. Yeah. He became so proficient that he won awards three years in a row, and uh, he could never at that point ever read music. Okay. And he was still playing by ear. So... The brothers, Alex and Eddie, began playing music together in the mid-60s as kids. Uh, originally, Alex played guitar and Eddie played drums. Okay. And what would happen is Eddie had a little job as a paper boy. And when he was out doing his route, Alex would play his drums. And he started to develop a, an interest oh. in playing drums and, and a passion for it. And right. they kind of... <clears throat> I think there was some arguing, there was some bickering back and forth about it, but eventually Eddie said, you know, okay, you could play drums and I'll play your guitar. So that's how that happened. Um, the first band the Van Halen boys started was actually called the Broken Combs in 1964. Now, if you think about that, Alex was 11 and Eddie was nine. <laughs> okay and they got they're in a band called the broken combs that's pretty they, awesome yeah i mean they began to play backyard parties in high schools and changed their name a couple of times they actually changed their name at one point to the trojan rubber company that's pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> then several years later in 1972 they changed their name to genesis but then somebody told them, wait, there's a British band named Genesis. So you can't have that. So they would change their name to Mammoth, like Woolly Mammoth. Okay. And at this time, 
the lineup for Mammoth was Eddie on guitar and lead vocals. Alex was on drums, and a friend of theirs named Mark Stone uh, played bass. Okay. Now, around 1973, they would meet a very interesting cat that lived in the area named David Lee Roth. Okay. And, and David was, was fronting a, an R&B influenced rock band called the Red Ball Jets. Roth had a sound system. Okay. That they were renting from him sometimes for gigs for $10 per night. So they were a three piece at that point with, with Eddie singing. They figured we could save some money here, $10 at least if we bring in a singer. So, you know, bring in David. And he actually agreed. Okay, so David Lee Roth became the singer of Mammoth with the other three guys in the background. Now, the idea to change the band name once again, this time uh, to Van Halen, was all David Lee Roth's idea. Uh, he felt it was a unique name and a powerful name and that it had artistic and marketing advantages, kind of like a, a band name like Santana. All right, something that could be easily remembered and had marketing value. Um, with David Lee Roth now on lead vocals, Van Halen began playing festivals, parties, and city parks in places like Pasadena, San Bernardino, and Venice, Venice Beach. Often the police were called for noise issues, okay, and uh, the band had a reputation for being rowdy and its audience for being rowdy. Van Halen also began playing clubs in L.A. and West Hollywood to bigger and bigger crowds. They often hung flyers at local high schools, which would build their, you know, their uh, their following. OK, they would, would just build their presence. It's people, you know, high school kids start, started to follow them around. And, you know, that's how they did it. So about a year later in 1974, Mark Stone, the bass player, who was kind of a bit ambivalent about even being a musician or playing music he got replaced by michael anthony sobolewski okay now michael had also sung in some other bands so he had a voice and uh he was brought in for that you know good voice and for his bass playing abilities as well now also in 1974 the band got a big big break when playing at gazari's on the sunset strip now, Gazari's is the place that um, that the Doors got a big break in when they were starting in the 60s. Owner Bill Gazari thought Van Halen was really too loud for the club, but the band's managers, Mark Allegori and Mario Miranda, took over the club's hiring and bookings, and they ended up booking Van Halen straight through to 1976. Wow. Wow. So by the spring of 75, they were playing there, and then they were also playing on Tuesday nights at a place called Myron's Ballroom, and they were also regulars at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Whiskey A Go-Go. So, you know, they're playing quite a bit every week. Um, all of these club, all this club gigging led to a need for a demo tape. Now, this is a very interesting story. It's part of uh, rock and roll legend. Uh, I, I believe it to be true. 
okay? And it's part of the Van Halen story. So the way it goes is the famous DJ Rodney Bingenheimer, who we've done a show on him, okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he saw Van Halen at Gazzari's, and that was in the summer of 76, and he was impressed big time. So he got in touch with Gene Simmons from Kiss, and he just said, listen, you know, go down to Gazzari's and check this band out. Gene did, and he was very impressed, and he ended up saying, listen, you know, I'll, I'll produce a demo for you. So he produced a 29-track Van Halen demo that was called Zero. That was the name of the demo. And it was recorded at Village Recorder Studios. I think he put up his own money for this. I'm not positive. Okay, but I think that, you know, he really helped them put this demo up. And uh, it was recorded at Village Recorder Studios in L.A. And then there was some post-production overdubs, very, very little uh, done at Electric Lady Studios in, in New York City. Now, Simmons floated the idea to the band that, that maybe they should change their name again. He had an idea of calling them Daddy Longlegs, but <laughs> that didn't go anywhere. Now, Kiss Management... I don't know that name. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There is a great band now called Daddy Longlegs that I've seen several times that play around the city and stuff. They're like a blues band. But... Uh, to call Van Halen Daddy Longlegs at that time? No, nah, I don't think that would yeah, work. No. Now, Kiss Management at that time really wasn't sold on Van Halen and kind of, you know, made Simmons back off a little bit. Simmons had to go on tour, and uh, there wasn't much he could do about it. But the demo really wasn't going anywhere. Okay, they were shopping it. It just really wasn't going anywhere. So... In stepped a guy named Doug Messenger. Doug Messenger is Van Morrison's lead guitarist, okay? And he knew that record producer Ted Templeman was looking for a guitar hero act, okay? Somebody with a great guitarist that could be in the forefront. Now, Messenger had seen Van Halen at the Starwood Club in Hollywood, and he made several calls to Warner Brothers Records to try to get Ted to see them. So in December 1977, record executive Mo Osten and producer Ted Templeman went to the Starwood, Starwood Club to check out Van Halen. Now, they knew that they were coming. So anticipating these big shots, they, they hired roadies for the first time. <laughs> they used to just carry their own equipment, but they oh, didn't yeah. want to look. They didn't want to look like that with these record executive guys there. So they hired roadies, and they played at the club. The audience was there wasn't a big audience that night. It was pretty pretty small, uh, but the two Warner Brother reps were kind of blown away, and and they basically, they yeah, they loved it, and they wrote what's called a letter in, of intent on a napkin. And was which is basically like, you know, listen, we're from so and so, we're interested in signing you, let's do this. And they would schedule a meeting at a diner, a local diner, uh, about a week later. And it would be between the band, their future manager, who was Marshall Burl, Milton Burl's nephew, Milton Burl, the comedian, okay. <laughs> and 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 Warner Brothers touring manager, Noel Monk who very interestingly had just guided the Sex Pistols on their crazy tour through the South 
and the West. Okay, that was some tour <laughs> yeah, that was that had just happened, and that was a disaster. They were on Warner Brothers. Okay, so Warner Brothers offered Van Halen a kind of standard two record deal that heavily favored the record company. Uh, it would pay the four the four band members seventy cents on every album that they sold. Unfortunately. This deal would leave the band about a million in debt at the conclusion of their first supporting tour in 1977, opening for Journey and, and Montrose. Okay, uh, they would get out of that, but but it would be some money problems in the beginning. Now, the recording of the debut album began in August of '77 and lasted a speedy three weeks. Producer Ted Templeman recorded them mostly live. There were very few overdubs, and the album cost approximately 40 grand to make, which was really nothing. Okay. The song list was basically what they were playing live at the time. Uh, powerhouse songs like Running with the Devil, Jamie's Crying, Feel Your Love Tonight, and On Fire are all Van Halen classics. Now, there was an instrumental song on there called Eruption which featured just Eddie on guitar and, and, and nobody had ever heard a solo like this. Okay. It just was totally different. Blew everybody away. So the interesting thing too, is the cover photos on this record. Now they were, they were showing the band live at the whiskey and the guitar pictured on the album with, with Eddie was his signature Frankenstrat guitar. I don't, I don't know if you have a picture of the back of that record. Rob. No, I don't. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it, it shows the Frankenstrat, I believe, in white. Okay. And that would be something that you would see later on. He would paint it red. And uh, the reason that he uh, called it a Frankenstrat, it was a Stratocaster, a Fender Stratocaster, but it was all built out of like different parts, different replacement parts. He, oh. Eddie, Eddie was like a, a genius when it came to uh the guitar as far as even just you know getting the right sounds and creating the right the right equipment to put the type of pickups the type of you know whatever okay he, you know because like eddie's also like if you pick like the top greatest guitarists uh, of all time and eddie's always up there and be these top 10 top five he's always up there as one of yeah, the greatest yeah guitarists. I, I would put him i would put him up there in the top 10 as well um you know really there, there's nobody that ever sounded like this guy no not not before not after you know and, no. and so the liner notes for the Van Halen One album would thank DJ Rodney Bingenheimer and also Gene Simmons from Kiss. Now, critically, this album was often slammed when it came out. Uh, critically, they people the critics called it kind of self-indulgent. This band isn't going to last. Uh, but but fans and the public thought different. Okay, yeah. So the album would reach number nineteen on Billboard with the debut single a cover of the Kings. You really got me peaked at number 36. The album has by this point received what's called diamond status in sales, meaning it's like super multi-platinum. It sold over 10 million copies in its first 20 years. Okay. And still continues to sell. That's insane. All right, so you're talking by 1998, you know, 90, 97, 98, 
it sold over 10 million copies and that's already 25 years ago so it's it has to be it has to be double that okay at this point so the band immediately went on tour after this album was released uh and again it this is one of the greatest debut records of all time okay uh as far as sales and and really just quality i mean just it it, it kicked it kicked the world in the ass okay this album um they would go on tour immediately and then return to the studio again in late 78 to record Van Halen 2. Now, this album was recorded in a similar way to the first one, uh, but the band would use a Putnam 610 console to record the album, which was all done at Sunset Sound Recorders in Hollywood. And Ted Templeman was, was again brought back. In fact, he would do all the David Lee Roth era stuff. Um, drawing still from their original demo, they, you know, and their live sets tracks like dance the night away would, would be popular. That would be the hit single getting to number 15 on billboard. So now they're moving up the charts single wise. Uh, the album would peak at number six on billboard as well. Uh, other tracks like bottoms up and beautiful girls would all become fan favorites over the years and, and all part of their live set. The inner sleeve shows David Lee Roth's foot in a cast. Uh, what happened was he allegedly broke his heel trying to do one of those like spread eagle jumps that he used to do. Okay, yeah. on the live show, he, he came down wrong and broke his heel. Um, in 1980, the next album would be Women and Children's First. Women and Children First. Um, and was the next album and it basically cemented them as a great live act to see yeah a great, a great band to be listening to multi-platinum okay definitely for warner brothers now the album had two hit singles and the cradle will rock and everybody wants some uh they recorded again at sunset sound and ted templeman was was at the helm again um by this point, Ted had their sound down pretty down pat. Um, some interesting additions to this record are the use of more overdubs. It, it, it gave it a little bit more of a layered sound, this album. And uh, the opening track, And the Cradle Will Rock, begins with what everybody thinks is a guitar. That chugging kind of sound at the beginning of the song. Yeah. Okay, It's not. All right, It's actually a Wurlitzer piano. Okay, put through a phase shifter effect through Eddie's 1960s Marshall Plexi amp. All right, so <laughs> it's really, it's really a, a piano that is that sound, which is strange because it, there's two parts in the song when you hear it. You hear it in the beginning, and then after after the break in the middle, it kicks in again. And I, I mean, I did know that when I was doing the research for the show, but for many years I never knew that. I had learned that years after I bought the album. You know, I never, I never knew that. So, could this be magic on the record? Contains the only female background vocal ever on a Van Halen recording. Wow. Okay. Uh, there was a woman named Nicolette Larson who was brought in. Now she had worked with Neil Young. Okay, so she was known for that. There's actually some rain that you hear in the background of that song, and that's not an effect. That was actually. It was raining when they were recording and they they decided to mic it up and use it in the song. 
Okay. Wow, I never realized that. Yeah, yeah. The album got to number six. All right, so it did very well. The next year in 81, uh, during the recording of the album Fair Warning, Eddie was was insisting on doing a darker record. Okay. Uh, he wanted to have uh, some guitar with a little more complexity, uh, basically a darker record. Now, this was at odds with David Lee Roth, okay, who had kind of poppier tastes, okay? Yeah. Uh, face it, D Roth was a showman, okay? And he wanted to be rich. So, you know, it just, <laughs> you know. Eddie, Eddie was Eddie was looking to do something that maybe was going to be less commercial, and it just was kind of at odds with what David would do, would want to do. Now, Temple Templeman actually was against it too, but him and Roth gave in, and they agreed with Eddie's wishes. Um, it wasn't without trouble though, because a couple of times uh, the producer Templeman walked out. Okay, and uh, it, it turned out that this was their slowest selling album of the David Lee Roth era, but it did sell 2 million copies and peaked at number five on billboard. So it, it actually did very well. Um, the one track that, that stands out for me and I, it got played on the radio quite a bit, uh, was mean street. Okay. And, uh, that's a different kind of song for them. If you compare it with what they were doing before. And also, uh, the single unchained did very well, uh, especially yeah. in Europe. Um, there was a single in America also released called So This Is Love. Uh, unfortunately, that only peaked at 115. Uh, the album featured some synthesizer on it, okay, uh, in small amounts, which would kind of foreshadow what would come. Yeah. Okay. Eddie was getting interested in, in that. Um, one thing that the band did, okay, and, the, and Warner Brothers obviously had to be involved was uh, they actually used the payola scheme to help push this album. Yeah, yes, okay. they did. And, and, and for our listeners who don't know what payola is, payola is when you pay people to pay your, play your record, okay? So DJs were getting paid uh, to push this, and I'm sure there were other people getting paid to push this album up the chart. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, they paid a quarter of a million dollars to do this, and uh, – and it worked. Um, it's illegal, but it worked. Okay. <laughs> so the next record was called Diver Down. And uh, that would be released on April 19th, 1982. And was recorded in just two weeks. Okay. It was very qu quickly recorded. Uh, it was the band's fifth studio album. Now, did you ever look at the album cover on this? No. It's it's a it looks like a it's a flag okay technically, it's a distress flag for when there's a scuba diver that's missing. Okay. Oh wow! It's that red red flag with a white diagonal line through. Yeah, I remember and, now. Yeah, and uh, but there's also kind of like a double entendre, okay? There's kind of like a sexual connotation to diver down, get it? Dive, Ooh. dive her down. Okay. That down, yeah. Sure, that was all David Lee Lee right there. Sure. <laughs> really rough. That was so, David Lee. Yeah. So the problem with Diver Down, uh, for a lot of people and, and actually for, for, for the band, it, it, it came at a time when they were touring a lot. There was a lot of pressure to put another album out. And and five of the twelve songs 
on Diver Down are covers. They're, they're good. They're very good covers. But that's almost half the record. Okay. So the first song that was uh, uh, released as a single was Oh Pretty Woman, which was originally done by Roy Orbison. They do a great version of it. Um, yes, they do. The next was Dancing in the Streets by Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Uh, yeah. Both of those songs were David Lee Roth's ideas to, to record. What David Lee wanted to do was take a break. And I think the band wanted to take a break, not just him. But in order to stay current, they would just release a single. But the, the, comp the record company was pushing them to do a whole album. So that's how Diver Down got to be. Um, they also covered a Kink song, Where Have All the Good Times Gone? Yeah. Um, and that was a track that they had been doing live. Uh, also a track by uh, a track called Big Bad Bill and the old country song, Happy Trails. They end, they end the album with that, which to me was always kind of like just a funny yeah, thing. Great. It, it just showed that they were like, yeah. light, you know, lighthearted and, you know, whatever. And they could have fun. Um, you know, the, the first album had Ice Cream Man on it, which is a funny song, too. You know what I mean? It's that's a great record. Um, so, you know, Diver Down. uh there was an, actually it was a third single on there called Secrets. Okay. Um, fair Warning was not really a, 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 did I say Fair Warning? I'm sorry. Diver Down was not really a favorite of Eddie's. Okay. He felt he needed that break and uh, was pressured to put out the record. Um, the album did go to number three though. Okay. Yeah. The singles, the singles did go top 40. It's not a bad record. It's probably maybe the weakest that and I mean, I don't know. Fair warning and Diver Down. I kind of, I've always been a little like 50 50 on both of them. You I, know what? Those were the record probably that they needed filling or they had to make an album. So they, they put that out. That's that's the way it feels. That was rushed, but the company needed the album. So to keep him, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it what happens is, you know, bands get banned, and we've seen this in a million podcast we've Many done time. Band, bands bands get burnt out from touring and then they have to go and produce a record and the record company you know they they care about their bottom line they don't want to see the band lose popularity and you know I mean, the sub. yeah I mean, remember we did the show in boston how many yeah. years in between there was albums and it was always a problem with the record company yeah you know, that's always an issue with bands and the more the more popular you are the the, the more pressure you get yeah, because everybody's they, they, looking to get paid. They want they want the albums out there because how do you get paid? You make albums and then you start a tour. Right. And that's that's it. But these guys they start to get tired, burnt out, you know. So anyway, um that same year in in, in eighty three, uh Van Halen got in the Guinness Book of World Records. And what it was for was the, the highest paid single appearance for a band in history. Uh I Bet that's probably been beaten now, but at the time, it was one point five million dollars for a ninety-minute set at the US Festival. Okay, now the uh, the US Festival festival uh, was pretty cool. Uh, there were lots of bands in it. Uh, I can remember. I think the Ramones and the Stray Cats and and uh, I think Journey and you know a bunch of these other huge bands were in it. Um, 
Sticks, I think, was in it. I, I could be wrong. Um, it was kind of like a, a big financial failure, that, that, that festival, okay, all in all. But Van Halen got paid $1.5 million. Now, what's funny is David Lee Roth was, was, was totally lumped up for this show. <laughs> and he actually forgot half the words to, to everything, and it just was a notoriously bad performance, you know. But, hey, look, it's Van Halen, you know. It's Van Halen. So, uh, it was around this time that, that there started to be some tensions in the band. Uh, Eddie and Eddie and, and David Lee Roth were, were starting to uh, bump heads, bump heads in, 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 in the creative direction that the band was, was going. Okay. Uh, that happens. Bands get burnt out. And then sometimes the troubles turn inward and guys start fighting. And that's kind of what was happening. Uh, there were some issues with Michael Anthony. Uh, he was considering, they were considering replacing him. Um, but Eddie took some time off and he started working on the soundtrack for the comedy, the wildlife starring Christopher Penn. Remember that movie? Yeah. It's, it's casual, man. It's casual. It's casual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he did the, he did the film score for that. And, uh, if you listen to the movie, watch the movie, and listen to the film score. There's, there's a lot of keyboards, okay, and also a lot of drum machine. And that was another sign of things to come. Now, also what happened here, which would become a breaking point with, uh, with Eddie and David Lee, is uh, David Lee Roth didn't like it that Eddie was doing projects outside the band. Oh, yeah. Okay, he had a problem with that. Uh, the next album, we all know it. Okay, it's it's their most commercial record uh, of the David Lee Roth era. Okay, and that's that's nineteen eighty four. It's a great um, album. I love I love that David. Yeah, I mean, no, it's it is a great album. I mean, all of the David <laughs> Lee Roth albums are great. They're all good. All right, I mean, the first two are like my personal favorite, but yeah, but, they were very you know, they were very good. Yeah, I mean, but anytime I'm listening to nineteen eighty four somewhere, it it just takes me back to that time. It's a good album. Okay, uh, but. Okay, you know, there's a lot of keyboards on that, which we'll talk about. Um, it was released on January 9th, 1984. It went five times platinum after the first year of release. And it was recorded at Eddie's newly built home studio called 5150, which would be a, a name of their album later on after David Lee left the band. Uh, the album featured keyboards in the forefront very prominently. Uh, the lead single, the famous Jump, okay, had a keyboard played hook and by Eddie, who played it, and it became the band's first and only number one hit during the David Lee Roth era. Wow. Uh, the next single, Panama, got to number 13. I'll Wait also got to number 13. Uh, Hot for Teacher became a huge MTV hit. You mentioned it earlier. And that's still a classic video. Okay. Uh, the album would peak at number two. You know why? It didn't go to number one? Why? Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yeah. Kept it out. So. And that, uh, that album came out. That was, I thought that was one of the, when I, when I said, that was one of the biggest albums that came out, that, that Thriller album. I, it was unstoppable. It was, it was a monster. And, and that must have lasted number one for like I don't, weeks. 
I can't, I can't remember. I, I don't know the exact amount, but if that thing wasn't number one for six months, I don't, I don't know what, I mean, it might've even been more than that. I mean, right. it was like, you know, cause every, every single, every single was like top five. Okay. And, and, you know, the album was at number one for so long. You couldn't get away from it. You know, yeah, it was a lot, like, a lot like 21 weeks in number one or and, 21 weeks. It was something ridiculous. I mean, had, had that not existed, Van Halen's 1984 would have went to number one. Oh yeah. Okay. And, uh, a lot of other bands would have done well too. You know, <laughs> Michael Jackson kept a lot of people down that year. Yeah. It's okay. It's all right. So 1984 was actually different when they were recording it. Okay. Uh, compared to other records that they did in two, three, four weeks at a time. This took uh, several months to record as, as Eddie worked out these keyboard parts and uh, worked out, uh, you know, issues with the, um, you know, the sound and the new studio and all that. So, the album cover art is very interesting. You have that sort of baby cherub-looking baby smoking a cigarette. Okay. Yeah. Now, what that's called is a puto. Okay. A puto is kind of like a fat, chubby baby cherub, all yeah. right, with wings and, um. They found a they the, the artist is um, uh, a person named uh, Margot Nahaus, okay, and uh, Warner Brothers, I believe, put them in touch with her, and you know she had some other ideas. There was going to be a, a four chrome women, chrome colored women on the cover. Turned out they she really couldn't do that. Uh, then they were looking through you know, other examples of her art and they found this, this what's called a puto. Okay. And not a puta, Rob, a puto. Okay. <laughs> so, and it was smoking a cigarette. Okay. And they loved it. Okay. And they chose that for the, for the album cover. Um, but they would get in trouble in, in England with this. Uh, they would be deemed offensive and they, in England, the, 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 the baby's cigarette was covered with a sticker. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess when you unwrapped it, you saw it, you know, but it, yeah, for that, um, you know, what can I say about 1984? I mean, if you're watching this show, you, you, you know, the album, uh, it's an eighties classic. Uh, it's often referred to as Van Halen's best album of all their, their, their errors. Okay. Uh, I, I would, I'll give them that in a way. Um, cause it has such a, great personal memories. I still think the first two are like blown away. Incredible. Uh, but you know, for somebody to say 1984 is their best album of all, I, I don't have a problem with that, you know? Um, but the this reason was because it was the most commercial success album that they had, you know, other yeah, than that, you know yeah. those other albums were very low key, but then when this album came out, 19, 19, um, Oh, 84. 1984 came out. Um, it actually helped sales the other first couple albums. It, well, that's the thing. It actually it, it introduced because of MTV. It introduced kind of like a whole other audience to Van Halen. Okay, not that nobody knew who they were, but the commercialness of this record definitely made people go back and say, All right, "I'm going to buy Women and Children first. I'm going to buy Van Halen too." Or, Diver down or whatever, okay, and you're you're right, okay. 
Now, sadly, what was happening through, and we've seen this so many times with bands, is you're in the middle of your your biggest success. You're in the middle of your biggest commercial time, okay? And your band starts to fall apart. Yeah. And, you know, David Lee Roth complained that there were too many keyboards on this record. Okay? Uh, That was a contesting point between him and Eddie. Eddie was getting into playing keyboards and you know, not that he was bored with guitar. He just wanted to bring this to the band and Roth didn't Roth didn't agree with that. Okay. So he would leave in 1985 and Sammy Hagar would come in to replace them and they would become a totally different band. It was a totally different band. Yeah. Now I'm just going to throw it out. there; it would become a sucky band. Okay. Yeah. You know, they just, whatever edge they had was all because of David Lee uh, Eddie is Eddie is a incredible musician, but he's not. He was kind of a bit of a, I guess you could say, an introvert. Am I wrong? Yeah. You know, so he wasn't the guy that everybody was focused on on stage. But I'm not gonna I'm gonna back off on that remark for a second because everybody went to see Eddie play. Okay. Oh, of course. But, you always saw him play. You know, Roth was Roth was such an amazing frontman. Okay. Um, but there's an interesting irony to this. Okay. Roth Roth complained that there were too many keyboards. And then what does he do when he goes out with his first solo album? I'm not talking about just a gigolo that he did the EP with. That was a joke. Okay. And it was funny. And it, it was kind of like very lighthearted. It was MTV driven. Okay. You know, California girls and, 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 and just a gigolo was just funny. I didn't take it that seriously. Okay. But then he came out with, uh, what was that song? Uh, Just like living in paradise. Yeah. With Stevie, with, with, with Steve Vai on guitar. I think that was around 85, 86. There's fucking keyboards all over that record. <laughs> 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 it really, it really made no sense. Like what was he complaining about? You know, but I, I just think he wanted out. He was, uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. Now, um, you know, they would reunite with David Lee Roth years later, and there would be another album. Uh, didn't care for it that much. I don't even remember the name of it. Uh, I heard it once. Uh, and they would tour again with David Lee uh, and made the fans happy. But I don't think they ever recaptured. You know, Michael Anthony wouldn't be part of that either. Okay. Yeah. They had, uh, they had uh, Wolfgang Van Halen, Eddie's, Eddie's son on on. I think on bass and, and all that. Okay. Uh, you know, they never recaptured that, that, that edge that they had from, you know, the first six albums with, 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 with David. Yeah, it's hard to recap. It's hard to yeah. do it and capture it again. And it's, you yeah. Know. And now Eddie's gone, which is very sad. You know, he, he, yeah, he died of cancer. Yeah. He died of cancer, you know, and uh, he died of mouth cancer too, which is not nice. You know, and uh, not that any cancer is nice, but it's not a good one. Um, yeah, I remember when Eddie died, it was, you know, very sad. And, and uh, he, he is missed. He is missed. David Lee Roth went on to interesting things. I mean, the guy was a paramedic for a while. Did you know that? Yeah, I know. He, I, they, they interviewed him a few times. He was a, he was he a, was paramedic, a paramedic in the Bronx. Yeah. He was in the Bronx. I met somebody that, that, actually needed an ambulance and and david lee roth worked on him 
Took him to the hospital. I met this guy in a ball one night, and I'm like, "You're full of shit." And he was, "No, you took a picture with him and everything." He was like, <laughs> "Wow, that that's what he did. He became yeah. a paramedic." I know, I know. So that's it for Van Halen, the David Lee Roth years. What do you think? Ron? Wow, pretty damn good, man. That I got. I gotta tell you, man. I think this is what's um. It brought a lot of um, memories, man. And it just blew my mind. It just talk about some of these songs. Cause I remember them on MTV. I remember seeing all these on MTV and just thinking like, wow, man, look, look at the girls. It was just, it was like a big, big look they had. It was like, yeah. this, this, you know, with him riding the fucking mic and the hatch and, the, and jumping around, it was like, it was like they were just a, they were just a fun they were just a fun band. Oh, yeah. an interest an interesting thing. I don't know if you knew this is um when David Lee Roth left the band, they were looking for replacements. Now they knew Sammy Hagar because Sammy was in Montrose and you know, they had toured with him and you know, he had a a a, a, a popular solo career of his own with yeah. Drive 55 and, and all that. But one guy that they were they were gonna reach out to, uh, and I think they actually did. Maybe not directly. They just kind of put feelers out. They were gonna ask Joey Ramone. Oh shit! To join Van Halen. Now, wow. That that's to me that's bizarre. Okay, uh, Joey was a fan. All right, but he had put the word out. No, nah, I'm I'm good where I am. I just can't I can't see. I can't see how that could have worked. But to me, that was the same thing when they brought the singer Extreme. I was like, "Ooh, no!" Yeah, no, no. Well, Extreme sucked from day one. I mean, that was that was nothing. Uh, yeah, that was just like you guys are just desperate, okay? Yeah, but but the idea of the ni- 1985, the Ramones had just done too tough to die, and you know it was it. You know, I mean, they they weren't selling great, but they were a great touring band. Yeah, and that's it was just. I mean, Joey Joey was too much of a uh, his own character to fit in with Van Halen. You know, what would he change his name? I mean, you know, would he be Joey Ramone and Van Halen? You know, it just I I don't know that to me. And and I and 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 look, I I remember uh, Joey Ramone wearing Van Halen shirts and stuff, and 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 talking about how he loved the band. So maybe that's why they asked him. And I guess they liked his voice, which he had a good voice. Yeah. But uh, I don't see how that could have worked. But yeah, me either. You know, and that would have been been the end of the band anyway. The Ramones. That would have been the end of them. That would have. Yeah. You know. So All anyway, right. that's it, man. So where can we find you, Mister Rossi, online? You your- can find me on X on X. Facebook, on Instagram, and on the uh, laptop website. And uh, YouTube also. So all on the all on the getting lumped up, right? All on the getting lumped up, the umbrella, you know, the thing that that does the stuff that other people are doing. And I gotta uh, give a big uh, shout out to the fan. We got two hundred and fifty thousand views so far on YouTube, which I have no idea how we did is that. Is that YouTube or the audio? YouTube. Oh, that's YouTube. Okay, I didn't realize yeah, that. YouTube said, "Yeah, we got that many views." Okay. Fantastic. Thanks, thanks to Manny Grossman. Oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Douchebag. <laughs> yeah, we're going to leave this in. We're going to fucking start some shit. <laughs> uh, anyway. Most um, people check out the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's always looking, checking our views, right? 
So yeah. anyway, um, if you're looking for me, I'm on X also, Rocker Mike 212. I'm on Instagram, Rocker Mike 212. I'm now on Thread or Threads. What's it called? Yeah. Threads. Threads. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as Rocker Mike 212. I'm still kind of getting used to that uh, social media site a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm Rocker Mike on MeWe, Clout Hub, Truth Social, and Getter. And of course, if you look at me on Facebook, where I'm most active, uh, you got to find me under Rocco Mike. The Italian side took over for that. Actually, Facebook won't let me be Rocco Mike because Zuckerberg sucks. Um, but I'm Rocco Mike and the Rock Show podcast group page. Check it's it growing. out. Subscribe. Yeah. Growing all the time. A lot of activity on there about the show. And, you know, I. I, I, I talk about bands playing around, give tour dates, or, you know, there's always a Rocker Mike song of the day on all these social medias. I do that. Yo, oh, yeah. You, you're and, very good at that. And my, and my getting lumped up night. song of the night, okay, which gets you through the night. And uh, hit like, subscribe on the YouTube channel if you like what you're seeing here. And you know how we end every show. Don't get drunk. Get lumped up. And we'll see you next time. Take care, people. I want to get up top tonight. Listen to Rob Ross and Young Rock of Mine. On the only podcast that I'll hear. Rip off my